welcome to the Seahawks 360 podcast, a sports ethos production. I'm your host, Candace Higgins, and as always, it's a pleasure and it's a privilege to talk Hawks with you. Well, the Seahawks season is officially over. Seahawks lost their playoff game to the San Francisco 49ers, 41-23. And while the Seahawks managed to put up a good fight there in the first half, the second half, I think all of the issues that have plagued them all season long crept up, played a part, and ultimately that was the end of the season. You know, I could spend a lot of time breaking down that game. That's generally how I do these things, but... I just decided that it's not really worth it to do that for the for this particular episode. Nobody really wants to hear how a, a, an intense breakdown of how the season ended, ultimately, because all in all, this season was the season was a success, right? Especially given the expectations from national media. Even if you were an optimistic person, I would say that you didn't have this type of expectation for this team in the first year of a rebuild when people expected the Seahawks to be contending for the number one overall pick they instead not only had a winning record at nine and eight for the regular season nine and nine on this on the whole season but they were able to make the playoffs which is huge experience for these young players for these rookies and a lot of narratives were proven wrong in terms of Russell Wilson versus Pete Carroll and how people looked at them both in terms of legacy. You know, there was a lot of, I think, ways with which Seattle was kind of taken off the hook for years. Seattle was blamed for holding back Russell Wilson. And ultimately, this season proved that in terms of the offensive line, while there were some terrible years, Russ had a lot to do with those issues himself. People really were able to see that for himself. People were able to see that it wasn't just Pete Carroll being old school philosophy must run the ball as much as it was that was what he felt was best for his quarterback. Because this year, this team was a pass first offense with Geno Smith and he was able to break franchise records and passing yards and passing completions and the most passing yards attempted, all of those good things. It was a great season for not only Geno Smith, but for these Seahawks as a whole. So I feel like that's what I wanted the emphasis of this episode to be. I don't want it to be a funeral. The Seahawks lost. Their season ended. Yeah. But honestly, they were kind of looking to even get into the playoffs. And the experience is going to be great. And a breakdown of the game just doesn't really make a lot of sense to me because this season was never about what happens this season this season was always no matter what would happen it was about the future and laying the foundation what did you have in your rookies what did you have in a coach in Pete Carroll what did you have in Shane Waldron and Clint Hurt so that's really what I want to evaluate I want to look at this from the long-term lens in the whole of the season and not just talk about this playoff game. So what we're going to do today, we're going to get into, I'm going to give you my grades, report card grades on the season, on all all aspects of the game. And then I'll give you my grades for the rookie report cards coming up next. All right, so let's get started with the Seahawks offense, which finished 13th overall, 12th in passing, 18th in rushing and ultimately produced two 1,000-yard receivers and a 1,000-yard rushing running back. 
um, who ultimately had 1,200 yards from scrimmage, over 1,200 yards from scrimmage. So overall, I'm going to give the Seattle Seahawks offense a B minus because this offense for a lot of the year was the problem. And in fact, at times of the year, the offense was carrying. Now, as the season went along, the offense did sort of fade back and it became a problem. And there are a couple reasons for that. And, and here are the areas that I feel like the offense should really grow. And if they grow in these areas, then this offense will be unstoppable. One, I just feel like there was inconsistent run blocking. And that was probably the number one problem over the whole year. Because even when the offense was dynamic, there just wasn't a lot of push at the line of scrimmage. And it, you didn't feel it as much when it was Rashad Penny those first five weeks because he was savvy enough, veteran enough to be able to make do I think he made you know runs that really weren't possible and Ken Walker did the same thing but he's a rookie obviously so not to the same degree so you felt that inconsistent run blocking a lot more a lot of people were frustrated with Ken Walker and his dancing in the backfield and to some extent that was true but the reality was he did some of that dancing because the run blocking just was not there so that's one area. If they can address that, that will go a long way. I think that push it up to a B plus. But they've got to do a better job at yards after the catch. They just do. You know, it's not enough to dock them huge points. But in order to be an explosive offense, they've got to get yards after the catch. Jet sweeps, fly sweeps, something. And and part of what was supposed to be a big part of that plan was D. Eskridge. But he has been an absolute bust in literally every way like I can't even describe I mean I think he's been a bigger bust than LJ Collier which is hard I guess he was a higher round pick but just in terms of production I actually think you got more out of LJ Collier than you have out of the Eskridge to this point which is unfortunate but it is the reality right now and it, it took away that element now those last two games we saw Derek Young kind of fill in on that role a time or two. And, and I'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along in this podcast. But that is an area of need. I highly hope that the Seahawks will draft a, a wide receiver because they need a little bit more depth. They need help at the wide receiver position depth there. Draft one doesn't have to be high, but a guy that can get yards after catch. I suggest they may even consider drafting another running back that is good at yards after catch or contact in that case, or both. But and as we go along, I've got a specific guy in mind that I think can help the Seahawks out in this regard, but that is a huge issue. Um, and it, Well, it's not a huge issue, but it really holds the offense back in terms of unpredictability, in terms of explosiveness, and in terms of just being a threat, especially when you're talking about in the playoffs. So... The other thing, the other thing that I dock the team for that, well, I did think they did pretty well, but again, it just fell off. And that's sort of the up-tempo quick game. Once once they began to let Gino air it out a little bit more after those first, I don't know, three, four weeks, after that Lions game, it kind of stands out to me. You saw a lot less quick game. Uh, not Not as many sharp throws, up-tempo, no-huddle type offenses. They should utilize that more, especially when the offense is just kind of struggling to get things going. They pulled it out a couple of times at the end of the season, but there was a long gap that I just feel like up-tempo offense quick game was underutilized. 
not not utilized but underutilized so that's the thing and then the final two things I have that could take this offense from what I have as a B minus to an A plus is Gino obviously has got to take care of the ball better that was not initially a problem to start the season. And I can't tell from Gino if it's because of the cold weather, if it's because the defenses were scouting him better, or what it was exactly. It probably was a combination of both. My hope is that it's just the defense is scouting him better and that he has to learn how to work around that over the weather because that's always going to be a problem every year. Either way, he's got to be more careful with the football. He just had too many turnovers. You don't want to average a turnover a game. You just need more from that, especially if you're going to be paying Geno $30 million plus dollars that's, that this team can't afford. That, could, that can throw the game. You know, Pete Carroll's all about the ball, and he does not want a quarterback who's going to consistently throw interceptions the way Geno has. I think he's cutting some slack, but I got a feeling, given how much roster or cap space Geno's going to take up next year, Pete going to be a little bit more hard-nosed about that. If Gino wants to keep his job, he's going to have to take care of the football. So, and finally, Pete Carroll would disagree with this because he specifically said he does not want Gino running around a lot. But I disagree. Gino is athletic enough to be able to get explosive plays, and he will run when needed. But I just wish they would utilize that a little bit more, too. Uh, sometimes there were times when Gino would take a sack when he didn't have to, um, and Gino... Well, that would be a couple of ways he could do. He didn't throw the ball away, but sometimes he'd take a sack or he, you know, throw an incompletion that was ill-advised simply because he and he just could have ran. It would have been that simple, and he chose not to do that. Hopefully, he scouts himself over the offseason and gets a little bit more efficient in that. Okay, so now for the defense. The defense ranked 26th overall, 13th in pass defense but 30th against the run. They were 14th in turnover differential. And so for all of that, I'm going to go with a grade of D-. minus. As you might imagine, no, the defense does not get a passing grade. What continued to hunt this Seahawks team was the inability to stop the run. And there was no scheme fix or anything that they could do because the reality is they just didn't have the horses up front. They assumed players they had from the previous season season would be able to carry over and effectively execute the new scheme. They were wrong. <laughs> they were quite frankly, flat out honestly wrong. And I think that was felt throughout the year from the players, from the coaches. They did everything they could to say, hey, we just don't have the talent. Right. They can't come out and say that. But I think it was obvious, especially when you got midway through the season, there was only so many scheme things you could do. They just didn't have the guys. And Pete Carroll had an interesting quote to me, a quote that I find interesting both for this past season and for future seasons. And to be honest, I find it a little concerning. But he mentioned something along the lines that he's not looking to run anybody else's scheme. He's looking to run their scheme. I think that's inspired by the fact that a lot of Clint Hurt, Deshaun Sean Desai, and maybe even to some extent Carl, Carl Scott, they're the Fangio disciples. And I think they want to run the Fangio scheme. And I think Pete refuses to completely buy in to the Fangio scheme. I think he wants some of his secondary type of uh, tricks and trades and philosophies 
mixed with a scheme and versatility of the Nick Fangio scheme. I think that's going to make it even more complicated in terms of finding personnel that matches because it really is not one thing. And it seems like that's going to be the case going into the future. I personally don't like that. I respect it from just wanting to be your own person, but I don't like it. Because I think some things on the back end of the Fangio scheme really is what made it work. And if you take those things out, then you're kind of halfway in and you're halfway out. So I want people to understand when they say fire Clint Hurt, even next year, if it doesn't go as great as people hope, some of that's going to be Clint Hurt's going to be bound to some extent because Pete Carroll does not want to run anyone else's scheme. And I think that's going to be the case for any coaching like change or anything else. I think this is probably one of the best things you're going to get, the versatility of the 3-4 and just have to deal with some of the things you're going to give up on the back end. Now, if they get another cornerback as talented as a Tariq Woolen, it won't matter. <laughs> but that's what it would require. They would need that level of talent in order to be able to execute on the back end. Neither the less, though. We'll talk more about that when we do a Parsing Pete episode. But overall, two soft coverages. Um, not a not a good front seven. Linebackers, they're not made. Those linebackers were drafted for a 4-3 scheme, and they play best in a 4-3 scheme. Pete Carroll thinks that Jordan Brooks is the guy moving forward. I disagree, especially coming off of a torn ACL injury. I think you're going to see him. I think it's going to be worse. I wish, well, they can't trade him now, but I wish that they would have had traded him at the trade deadline or something like that. I just... Well, I know they didn't have the depth, but you just hate that it went down the way it did because I don't think Jordan Brooks is the future. I think he would be great in a 4-3 scheme. I like him as a player. I just don't think you're going to get the best out of him. He's not good at coming off blocks, and he's terrible in coverage to the point of being an extraordinary liability, particularly against division rivals who know that he's terrible in coverage, and all they do when they need to get a first down is target Jordan Brooks. And it works every time. To be honest, maybe it'll take Pete Carroll seeing some of the linebackers at that position to really understand that his attachment to Jordan Brooks is a little bit overrated. I'll just be honest. These You need linebackers in this scheme that can get off blocks, that can disengage from blocks early in the play to be able to participate and stop the run or, you know, go back and cover it or what have you. But these guys, just they get stuck in blocks, and that was just – you know, then you get a 10-yard play automatically every time. And it was unfortunate to watch, not just for Jordan Brooks, but for Cody Barton. Um, that's another issue, and it was a part of personnel. You can have the scheme all day, but if the guy can't get off the block, I mean, how can you out-scheme that? I don't know that you can. And I don't think it was a good decision to go back. Some people say they should have gone back to the 4-3. That's not what you do in the middle of a year, especially when you're moving towards a, and pushing towards a winning record and you got a chance to make the playoffs the way that this team did, going back, that, that's just not how football works. You can't scrap all of the fundamentals you worked on all offseason long, midseason. You just can't. That's not how football works, especially when some of the players that you acquired and the new personnel – they it would it would be a disadvantage to them. It would be a disadvantage to Selby Harris, who you traded for. It would be a disadvantage to players who you drafted like Boye Mafe and even Daryl Taylor for all his flaws. Four three 
well, it's debatable if that's the best thing for him, really. But you know it's not good for Yuchin and Nwosu. And those are, to be quite frank, your most talented players. Even Bruce Irvin, who you brought in as a free agent off the street, is better in a 3-4 than a 4-3. So why would you go back just to give one advantage to your D-line when no matter what, you're split, right? No matter what, you got half 4-3, half 3-4. And ultimately, what you do when you're implementing a new scheme is wait it out right? Give yourself an opportunity to get better talent, similar to what they did with Shane Waldron his first year in the offense. The offensive lineman he had just didn't fit the scheme. And as bad as Austin Blythe has been, and he was bad, it still made for a better O-line experience because he had new personnel, rookies or not, that actually fit the scheme. And you could see what it was trying to do and how it was going to ultimately be effective. Even if it has its balances or its downfalls at times, you still understood and you saw what the scheme could be. And I think most people will see that from the defense next year. So D minus for them. I don't think it's a surprise to anybody. I I just think you got to get rid of personnel and then we can better evaluate the defense for what it is about if this this is the way to go moving forward. And then finally, best grade on the team is special teams, who I give a B plus to. Kudos to Jason Myers, who made first team all pro, as well as the Pro Bowl. Um, He led the NFL in all points scored. Um, He only missed four field goals, which is incredible, 91.9%. He had the fourth, the special teams as a whole had the fourth highest DVOA. Um, You had a pretty good year for Michael Dixon as well. And I think the only yet only real weakness of this team was being punt returns. And that's been a problem on Seattle special teams for some time now. Ever since Tyler Lockett sort of lost the zip in his step, they have it's been a revolving door. And I like what I saw from Godwin um, Iguanibe, I believe is how you pronounce it. Big fan of him. Um, he was great in kickoff returns. Ultimately, he's the reason why the Seahawks ranked ninth in kickoff return. Um, out of his 11 tries, five of his returns went for more than 30 yards, which is really great. I hope they try him on punt returns, too. I mean, why not use him? The guy's got great speed, bursts, agility, explosion. I think he could be a, a really promising aspect to this team, and I really hope they'll bring him back, and I hope they'll expand his role because I think he could do some great things. He could, go, he could He's the only thing, I mean, not he. But the the lack of a threat in the punt return is the only thing that's keeping this special teams from being an A, A plus, quite frankly, because they are elite. But I do think that was an area of weakness that needs to be addressed. So I gave them the highest B possible, basically because they're on the cusp of an A. And next year, I think I hope to see some uh, amazing special teams overall. And I hope to see two consecutive good years from Jason Myers. Jason Myers, who recently just got extended for four years, $21 million. Seahawks announced that yesterday. And I'm happy for him. I'm a little nervous about that contract. I mean, it's a $5 million cap hit. A lot of people are saying it's it's an overpay because he's making close to Justin Tucker money. The reality is he played better than Justin Tucker two out of the past three seasons. One. And two, his cap hit was $5 million last year. So it's like... million next year. It's not that big of a gap. So I think people need to stop freaking out about how money is spent 
you, sure, you could pay $2 million for a kicker, but when they miss 70% of your kicks, don't get upset, right? Because you pay for what you get for. You don't, you know, you don't get all pro-level talent and then pay bottom of the barrel money for it. So just keep that in mind, guys, as you're getting upset. Some people are getting upset about that signing. It's a good signing. They didn't overpay for him. That's market value. Most quality kickers, especially given that the cap space is about to go up each year, most are getting paid around $5 million. That's just the reality of it. So, anywho, I hope that we can see two consecutive years from him, though. That's the one knock on Jason Myers is that he is yet to have two consecutive good years in a row. Now, that is because of a variety of factors. I don't know if the second contract, he knows what it takes now to be good versus what it what it wasn't when he was good. That one off year he had in 21, maybe he's learned from that and what he did differently. It was coming off of a COVID year. That was a weird transition. Hopefully, we can see two good years, back-to-back years coming out of Myers. Even if he's not first-team All-Pro, you just want quality, quality kicks from him. I mean, you want him to make an, you know, 85, 90% of his kicks next year, and that'll go a long way. That plus the the upgrade and punt return will go a long way to make this an A plus special teams unit. All right, so re-emphasizing my initial point when I came on this episode, and that is that this season was never truly about this season. It was always about laying the foundation to be potentially a contender or in the mix next year. Now, Seattle surprised us. They're ahead of schedule. They were in contention this year, but it still doesn't change the fact that this was always the first year of a rebuild, a rebuild with which they had a lot of dead cap money from Russell Wilson, from Bobby Wagner, from other players, Chris Carson. And they'll have a lot less of that moving forward this season. They can truly add on to the great foundation that they built. But given this about the future, it's important that when looking at the season, you grade this rookie class. So here are our rookie report cards. I will go in order of order drafted. Let's start off with Charles Cross. The first pick for the Seattle Seahawks. He was graded a 63.1 on PFF. And so I'm going to give him a C plus. Now that's not based off the PFF, PFF grade. It's not. It's based on my own assessment of him. Um, he finished the year. He had nine penalties, seven sacks allowed, 50 pressures allowed on 738 passing snaps. Not great, but not bad. I think it's average, especially given how young he is. So you'd love for him to come out and have a 77 PFF grade and you know only allow maybe 30 pressures. That'd be more like what you'd want from a rookie. But he's so much younger. Then even Abe Lucas, if you're comparing the two. And he played against some really tough competition. So you got to give the guy credit for just holding up, being a reasonable starter. I think you saw him hit a bit of a rookie wall. I think he'll learn a lot and grow from this. If you look at it like this, if you compare him to previous Seattle Seahawks offensive linemen, he had a better year than George Fan, which is good. George, had a ter- George Fan had a terrible year uh, with the Jets. But... Brandon Shell, former, former tackle, had a better had a he had a better year than than Charles Cross by a little bit. If you look at PFF, in terms of presses allowed, things like that. 
but of course Charles Cross is younger, higher ceiling. Now, one thing that was in most encouraging to me is going back and just looking at at least how PFF graded him. You saw an improvement for him, particularly with the 49ers. Each time he played them, he got better in his first game. He had a 66.4 against them. He was terrible in his second game against them. He literally had a 16 grade. Literally. It was bad. It was bad. But in the playoffs, 72.2. So, I mean, that wasn't the case. You didn't see steady improvement from him in every game. I love to tell you that that was the case. It wasn't. He'd had some up moments. He had some down moments, some inconsistencies depending upon his matchup. That's understandable. But against a divisional rival and, most importantly, the 49ers, because that's the team to beat going forward, you love to see improvement from him on that end. I was extremely excited and encouraged by that to see him end on a strong note. Ultimately, he finished the year being the ninth best rookie out of 12. So, that was a C. Not great. It's actually technically below average, but... Like I said, he's so young. So I gave him a little curve there. If you're a little discouraged that Charles Cross allowed 50 pressures and seven sacks, I understand. Let me give you some encouragement. Here are a few things or a few examples of players who started at Charles Cross's age who went on to be excellent left tackles in this league, but had a had a year similar to Charles Cross. Just a few examples, and I wanted I wanted to go recent history. So, David Bakhtiari. His first year, he had a 69 PFF grade. Now, that's higher than Charles Cross's, but similar in that in that range. His second year, he went up to 72.2. Here's one of my favorites. Andrew Thomas, who this year is the best rated left tackle in the game, according to PFF. He was graded a 72, I'm sorry, a 62.4 in his first year. Now, that's worse than Charles Cross. He had a worse year than Charles Cross. But his second year, 78.4. It's a huge jump. And you'd love to see something similar like that from Charles Cross. And that was just his second year. As you know, I mean, now he's up to the 90s. He had an incredible year this year. So it's going to take time. He's a young player, but let that be an example in recent history of a player who, in that, who was in that same range and it just took a year or two, you know, year by year, started putting it all together. And you love this example, my favorite. Charles Cross, like I said, 63.1 grade on PFF. Trent Williams in his rookie year, 63.4, almost identical score. Well, you know what Trent Williams had in his second year? 79. 79 and he is widely considered the best left tackle just in general not according to pff like widely considered the best left tackle and these are all players who started in the same year as charles cross same age and had similar outputs in their rookie year and made a second year jump that was elite or superior elite or good while i say Boxiari had a good second year or elite. That's the floor. So lots to look forward to 
overall C plus from him, but that is solely grading him on his year. And I'm giving him sort of a curve there, understanding that it was a tough task what the Seahawks asked of him this year. So moving on to the second pick, Boye Mafe, who I actually forgot was drafted this early. I'll be honest. I, for some reason, was thinking he was a fourth or fifth round pick, and I guess it's because he was an older prospect, and a lot of people just kind of considered it a bad pick when they when it was made, and they didn't think much of him. So once, with the information that he was graded so high, I'll be honest, it kind of changed my grade on him. <laughs> it, it did. I, I was going to give him a B, uh, B minus, but given that he was drafted this high, I had a C plus on him. Yeah, same grade as Charles Cross. He graded out of PFF with 64.5. He started three games, had three tackles for loss, uh, four pass breakups. Uh, I'm sorry, four QB hits, 41 tackles, three sacks, 12 pressures. And he allowed nine out of 11 targets for 73 yards. He had a 94 passer rating allowed. So those are his stats. That's okay. And you want more, especially from a pass rush perspective, a boy in my face. Now, if I was grading him on run defense, he'd get an A because he had an elite run defense. But for him to have so many snaps over time and only have 12 pressures, three sacks, yeah. I mean, he played in all 17 games. He only started in three, but he played in all 17 games. And you just would have liked for his pass rush to at least improve as the season came along. You can, you know, he was touted as a, as a, unpolished pass rusher and you and this is going to be a big offseason for him in terms of if he's going to be able to meaningfully contribute to the Seahawks he's got a lot to work on in terms of his counters and pass rush plans and attacks and all of that I think he just gets washed up on the pass rush just a little bit too much for me um doesn't give much push not a lot of not a high win rate you, you want him to work on all of those things and I hope he stays in Seattle to train with with uh, uh Cliff Averill or something like that because there's a lot there, but you just didn't see it. You didn't see it flash a lot. I think any sacks he got were kind of circumstantial and not just because he popped on screen. But he gets a C plus and not an F or D because that run defense was elite. It really was. It was by far, it carried the Seahawks at a time where they needed it. Oftentimes, they needed it. Quite frankly, nobody else could stop the run. Daryl Taylor sh- sure couldn't. Uh, Quentin Jefferson struggled too. And Al Woods, you could only play him in minute, limited snaps. So his presence was needed out there, and he was he played a critical role. Even though I think for his draft stock, he didn't necessarily live up to the type of expectations you would hope. And he didn't do what you literally drafted him to do that well. So I'm being a little harsh. I know some of you might want to give him a B plus. I understand the argument behind all that. I'm not particularly passionate enough to to dissuade you on it, but I just say when considering the draft picks, you know, expectations that come with being in the second round, along with the fact that he was drafted to be a pass rusher, not a run defender, then, you know, he disappointed in some ways. I, I, I think it puts him at average overall. In the third round, the Seattle Seahawks selected Ken Walker- Oh, it was the second round. Just kidding. Sorry. In the second round, Ken Walker, the third, was selected. And what can you get? What else can you get this guy but an A? 
Really? What else can you give him? He had a phenomenal rookie year. He was everything that everybody hoped that he would be. A lot of people were upset about this pick. The value of picking a running back in the second round. I understand. I was excited about this pick because the Seattle Seahawks needed a game changer. I didn't think that Rashad Penny was going to be able to hold up, quite frankly. I anticipated that this was going to be the case. I anticipated he'd be the future um, offensive player of the year. Because I thought early in the year, you lose Rashad Penny, he'd go down, and that Ken Walker would take over and do exactly what he did, landing with over 500. He had 1,050 yards. Rushing, he had 165 yards received, uh, over 1,200 yards from scrimmage. He does need to work on his blocking. Uh, that was not, he was not as complete in that way as you like. And he needs to work on not dancing as much in the backfield. I'll admit, despite his blocking, sometimes, you know, he could have just went directly for it. But I, a lot of times, it's kind of one of those give or take things. I almost think of it like Russell Wilson when he would escape out of the pocket. You live by it, you die by it sometimes. And sometimes it'll hurt you, but overall, it's made for a lot of incredible plays at the same time, too. So, it's kind of a balancing act with him. I think he'll improve in that way in his second year. But I think there's always going to be some element of there's going to be times when maybe he cut back when he should he just should have hit the lane straight. And that's just because that's the type of risk or war you, you balance when you're talking about you know, a home hitter like that. And sometimes it's not gonna, always going to work out. So, he can't know that. He's not a future predictor. I, I cut him some slack on that, but that is an area of improvement. That's why he did not get an A+, plus, but he still very much so deserves an A. I think just from the impact that he had, a lot of times being the Seahawks' closer, he single-handedly won the Seahawks' game sometimes, keeping the offense on the field and the defense off the field just by being able to get consistent first downs when they need it or touchdown when they need it. Huge things. Huge things from him this year and a lot to be excited about. And next, there is third-round pick Abe Lucas. He graded out in PFF with a 68.4. I give him a B plus, especially given his value. Uh, Abe Lucas was the better tackle this year. Oh, you know, why give Candace, why give Lucas a B and give Cross a C? That's because Lucas was better, quite frankly. Um, he was ranked fifth out of 12 rookies, which is about where he was. He was above average. Now, he was an older prospect, so there's nothing to be concerned about. As I mentioned, he had more experience in college, so his floor was a little bit higher, maybe, than Charles was coming into the league. He had seven penalties, but he did allow 10 sacks. He, had 30, he also allowed 30 pressures on 678 pass-blocking stamps. I think Abe Lucas has the ability to be a superstar. Now, you're not going to hear these stats and think superstar, but I still think he can make a jump. Just his physicality and just seeing him pancake dude sometimes. Man, that guy, I think he's going to be a beast in this league. I think they've got their right tackle of the future. I think they got the left tackle of the future too. But, man, Abe Lucas might end up being the better the better tackle between both of these guys. Uh, huge fan of him and excited to see what he does in the future. Going to the fourth round, let's look at Kobe Bryant. Now, he was the guy who everybody predicted would be the star. He's the guy who, at least in his first year, everybody expected the most out of. But honestly, he sort of, he didn't disappoint given his draft stock, but 
given his, you know, being a Thorpe Award winner, he's a highly talented quarterback, playing next to Sauce Gardner, he had he had a tough road. He had to learn a new position. Seahawks played him in nickel and on the outside, and he had not had any experience at nickel. So I cut him a break in that regard, but I do have to give him a C minus just because he struggled this year for long stretches of times. PFF hated him, gave him a 55.8. I think that's a little harsh. I'd give him more of a 60, but I understand. Uh, ultimately, he was pretty rough in coverage. Now, he did have four passes defensed, four forced fumbles, two sacks, four TFLs, and four QB hits. So he showed some versatility there. He showed some playmaking, but, you know, he had he's had four forced fumbles since, like, week six against the Cardinals, and he just hadn't been able to add on to that. So they, I mean, he started off hot, and then it was this long stretch of him not being able to really make plays. So that's a little disappointing, at least on my end. I think if he would have kept that pace up, I'd probably have a much higher grade on him. But he wasn't able to do that. And he did get better in coverage at least, but it just wasn't enough to make up for how badly he started. Uh, his tackling, though, did improve every every week. He is one of, he's the only rookie I can say this about. Every week, his score improved, with the exception of the playoffs. His playoff score was... That, that was bad. That was bad. But every week, he steadily improved. Now, I think this offseason is going to be really important for him. It seems like, based off the Pete Carroll's conference, that they seem to want to keep him in nickel. I think they should just play him on the outside, find a guy, draft a guy who is a slot cornerback, and put him there and let him do it because he's got the skill set for it. I'd love to see a competition between Michael Jackson, Kobe Bryant, and Trey Brown on the outside. I think that gives you the depth that you need without you having to draft another cornerback. And I think it increases competition. Put another guy in the corner slot in the slot corner and call it a day. And then you always know you can put Kobe there. If the rookie's struggling more, you've got him as a backup. That's what I would prefer. That's probably not what the Seahawks are gonna do though. Too much like right, I suppose. Nevertheless, Kobe Bryant finished the season. He allowed 75% of his targets. Um, he allowed 657 yards, which was the third most of any rookie. Um, he allowed 12.2 yards per catch, uh, 116 passer rating allowed. It was rough. Boy, it was brutal. Not good for him. But, like I said, he showed playmaking ability. He showed flashes. And I think it was tougher for him because he's playing on a position C-, minus, but... You know, in order to really see the value in Kobe Bryant, you got to see him have a better year. You, you just can't get, have him giving up those chunk yards next year. Um, got to get that under control because it makes it harder for for Tariq Willen to have the impact he needs. Yes, he's taking away one side of the field, but part of it is because the team's automatically knowing they can get the first down going to the opposite side. It can't be that way. You know, you got to have other competition out there to sometimes force them to have to throw it to Willen or for them to really feel the loss of not being able to throw to one side of the field. Last year, that wasn't always the case. Speaking of Tariq Woolen, Tariq Woolen, with the highest grade of any rookie, Tariq Woolen is an A-plus from me. Now, maybe that's a little biased. He is my favorite Seahawk at this point. It's official. He just is. But it's an incredible year for him. Now, his playoff performance did drop his PFF grade down under 70, 69.1. He was above that 70 mark for most of the year. He had he had his rough shown, a rough shown in the playoffs, I think. And he knows that. 
But that's good for the team. That motivation, him being driven by that being his worst game of the year in the playoffs when they needed him most, I think it's going to drive him. Like, like He's going to be extremely motivated this offseason. And that you love to see. Because a guy with that level of talent who accomplished who accomplished having six interceptions, eight pass breakups, three forced recovery, three um, fumble recoveries, one blocked kick, a touchdown, allowing 51.5% completion. He had a 48.7 passer rating allowed. I mean, just a phenomenal year. And he did all of it pretty much on athleticism and speed. I think he was kind of winging it as he went. He had a general concept of the scheme, and he has, because he's a wide receiver, he has route recognition that's really good. But he's got so much to learn. And if he's motivated to be better, to not get burnt like that again, you love to see that's exactly the kind of chip on his shoulder, that Richard Sherman-like mentality you want him feasting on in the offseason. Let it fuel him to an even better year. I think he should win. Defensive Rookie of the Year. Some people could say I'm biased, but I just think the case is there. He had a lower completion percentage, a lower pass rating allowed. He got targeted less. All of these things, he had more interceptions. He had more playmakings. He impacted winning, and the other team didn't. I mean, well, Sauce didn't for his other team as much. Tariq won the team games early in the year. Period. He just did. With his pick sixes or his, his interceptions, he was... He gave his team wins. Now, Sauce is a better technician. But I got to be honest, Tariq Woolen is the better player. His ceiling is so much higher. I don't know how much better Sauce can get. Sauce can get better. Yeah. Just the rookie year jump. But in terms of technique, things like that. And he got away with a lot of pass interferences, if you ask me. Tariq has a lot to learn. He's only been playing that position for two years. So his ceiling is super high. Anyway, I got off that soapbox with an A-plus for my guy, Tariq Woolen. Phenomenal year. I have no critiques. Even on his worst game in the playoffs, I have no critiques. Because I think that was just a learning experience for him. Just like it was for all of our rookies. Tariq Smith. People forget about Tariq Smith. He's a six-round pick. Uh, pass rusher. And so when people say we need an edge rusher in this draft and it needs to be a point of emphasis... I agree to some extent, but it's not as big of a need as people think. They do need a starter caliber because I think a lot of the guys that the Seahawks have are more rotation players outside of Uchida Nwosu. I think you do need a long, a, a, a higher caliber player, a starter to draft alongside Uchida Nwosu with high upside. And then everybody else fills, fills right in because you got a Tariq Smith. You got an Alton Smith. You got an Alton uh, Robinson. You got Daryl Taylor Steele. Bruce Irvin is probably gone, right? But um, I think I'm missing somebody. But even so, that's plenty. Oh, Quincy Jefferson. But they probably won't play. They play. They pay him at big end more than likely. But that's a good edge rush group. Insert starter, uh, Daryl Taylor, Alton Robinson, Boy Alboye Mafe, and Tariq Smith. That's. I mean, you're gonna be able to keep your chin fresh. That's for sure. And your starters. Yeah, that's a const that's the wave of guys you need, assuming that you can get good production 
from Alton Robinson. Boye Moffat can make a jump and be a reliable rotational player. And that Tariq Smith can also become a reliable rotation player. All those three things happen. That is a threatening, brutal seven. But it all depends. They still need that top-end guy. So, um, it's not as much of a need as people think going into this offseason. They just need to get high upside guy, um, twitchy guy, difference maker at the position with the size that they need. Maybe a Tariq, uh, a Therese Wilson, if they can't get their hands on a, a um, Will Anderson. I like him at the position. Just a difference maker there. Anywho, Bo Melton, incomplete. He was signed. I, I just say N.A. for him. Incomplete grade from Tariq Smith. N.A. from Bo Melton, who ultimately got snatched. He got signed by Green Bay, but he didn't play a single snap for him offensively. So, incomplete. And he's gone from the team now. I don't think the Seahawks will probably bring him back. Then you got Dariq Young. Told you I'd talk about him. Now, I gave Derek Young a B-. Why? He didn't do much for you. Well, given his expectation, this guy, I can't remember if he was a 6th or 7th round pick. I want to say 7th round, but maybe I think he was 6th round and, and Bo Melton was 7th round. But even in his limited opportunities, one, he was a good special teamer all year. PFF gave him 58.4 grade. Um... But he caught all three of his passes. Not a lot, small sample size, but he caught everything he was asked. Everything asked of him, he completed. He had 23 yards after the catch. And that's not just 23 yards after the catch. I mean, granted, small sample size, but I went ahead and I looked up his yards per catch per reception. If he just got all of that on, you know, one carry. But no, he averages 11.3 yards after the catch per reception, which means each time he catches it, he's getting an additional 11.3 yards on average per reception. That's more than DK Metcalf. We averaged 9.2 yards out of the catch per reception. And Tyler Lockett, who only had 3.3. That's what this team needs. They need a yak, a, a, a yak kind of guy. I mentioned that earlier in the episode. That's missing. Now, I do think I would advise them drafting somebody else, but I think Tariq Young's going to be a big part of it. And Pete Carroll sort of insinuated that in his press conference as well. I think Tariq Young can be a jet sweep guy, but no shame in having two, just in case something happens to Tariq, uh, Tariq Young. But I like his physicality. I like his size. I like his speed. He seems to be getting more reliable at the catch point, a bit able to make more contested catches. And if he can give you yards after the catch and be that kind of guy, that can make for a dynamic offensive weapon. So hopefully look forward to seeing him get more snaps. I am confident that we will. I don't even really question that. It'd be great if they added to that. Like I said, just because, I mean, you lost Bo Melton anyway. Draft another Yak guy who can who can help add that element, you know, in two ways, right? Not just Derek Young, but also another guy who can, who can stretch defense horizontal. Defeat, defend every blade of grass. But this has been a wonderful season. It has been super fun to see how far this team has come, smashing expectations, even my own expectations being smashed, and seeing how great of a, of a draft class this draft class really was, how great of a season this was, and how huge this is, not for this season, but for the future. We'll have all of your off-season breakdowns, so be sure to follow me on Twitter at CandiceH901. Follow the show at Ethos Seahawks. 
that'll be a platform for uh, draft breakdowns, mock drafts, I'll have player profiles, all the information you need to know for the upcoming draft, and of course, breakdowns on my opinions on signings and offseason activity. You don't want to miss any of it. That's it, guys. That's all the time I have for today. That's it. I'm out. And as always, go Hawks.